What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead. Stocks continue to rebound. Bond yields are climbing. Even crypto is popping today. So why is my guest taking some risk off the table? We will ask him in just a moment. Plus, the C-suite in focus. J.P. Morgan doling out for Diamond. Chipotle's Brian Nickel is the fast food king. And could Netflix use some fresh blood? We'll ask about all of it. And crypto high-yield accounts are proliferating. One company offering interest of more than 6% on your digital currency holdings and lets you borrow with crypto as well. We'll talk to the CEO about the opportunities and the risks as regulators start to crack down. But we begin with today's markets. Dom Chu is here with those numbers. It's been quite a turnaround, and it's day two of this recovery trade since the sell-off that we saw on Monday. And now the major indexes, at least the Dow, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ, have all recovered all of their losses from that Monday sell-off and more. The Dow is the laggard there, but it's up about 260 points, three-quarters of 1% to the upside, 34,771 It is now, again, caught up to where it was before the sell-off happened. The S&P 43.49, up about half a percent. Same thing for the Nasdaq Composite as well. So predominantly green. We'll see if it stays that way into the closing bell today. Now, one of the part of the market that a lot of people have been watching, have been for a while, still one of the most popular, if not the most popular search on our website, CNBC.com, is the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. At the lows, down over here, we hit about 1.13% or just about thereabout. We are now up to about 1.29%, so a bit of a rebound trade there. Yes, the trend has still been lower, as you can see there, but a move higher in yields, people selling off some of the safety of U.S. government debt in favor of risk assets like stocks and maybe even crypto, as you point out, Kelly. And then the stocks of the day, if you're looking for the real buy-the-dip mentality, it happened in semiconductor stocks. The overall index is up about 5% in two days, but look at trading today. Lamb Research up 4%. Applied Materials up 3.5%. Same thing for KLA Corp and NVIDIA as well. Fresh off a four-for-one stock split just this week. Semiconductors, still one of those parts of the market that Kelly seemed to be on sale for people, and at least they want to buy those names when they go on discount. Back over to you. Yeah, maybe a quick sale. We'll see, Don. Thank you. Despite stocks erasing those losses from Monday's sell-off, my next guest says markets are heading for an unavoidable an unavoidable risk-off episode, especially if the Fed starts tapering. For more, let's bring in Barry Knapp. He's managing partner and director of research at Ironside's Macroeconomics. Barry, it's great to have you back. You're generally bullish, I guess you would call it, on the markets, but you've kind of changed your tune a little bit over the past few months. What do you see of concern? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we were unabashedly bullish from the from the lows. And I, I assume that any corrections this year based on sentiment would be limited to four to six percent or so until and unless we reach the point where the Fed started normalizing monetary policy. Now, this pattern has existed since World War II. Generally, there was one correction every business cycle when the Fed you know, achieved enough confidence or had enough confidence in the economy to start normalizing policy. But back in the days of rate policy, that was generally limited to about an 8% correction. After the global financial crisis and the 
emergency. Those corrections got larger, more like 12 to 13 percent. And it really is the role of risk and mortgage uh, purchases in particular that that really causes those corrections to be greater than they would have been otherwise. Specifically, what I'm getting at here is that when the Fed buys mortgage-backed securities and doesn't hedge prepayment risk, that suppresses volatility in the fixed income market, and and that permeates out through the system. When they stop buying mortgages, the mortgage desk of Barclays, where I used to work, Mm -hmm. or Solomon, you know, or, or Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley suddenly has to take down that prepayment risk. Right now, with rates having rallied so sharply, typically you would have had interest rate volatility rising, not falling. And so when this risk transfer happens, you that permeates out through the system from broker dealers through hedge funds and causes a big risk off shock. Even if we don't get the announcement next week that they're ready to taper asset purchases, it was a very good survey by Morning Consult that I saw late last week that some 70% of recipients of unemployment insurance have their benefits expiring by the end of August. To me, given the decline we're seeing in emergency uh, employment beneficiaries, unemployment insurance beneficiaries, mm-hmm. we're likely to have two very strong payroll reports by the time we get to sem- September. That will qualify for reach, you know, making substantial progress towards their goals. We've already achieved it on the inflation front, and they'll start tapering asset purchases, and we will have one of these you know, volatility risk-off shocks that will probably be greater than 10%, but that will mark the transition to mid-cycle. So it's an important inflection point, but it, it will be a risk-off sure. shock, and it's totally unavoidable. So let's talk about how people you think should be positioned for this. You're telling them to reduce their small-cap exposure, cut risk to industrials, materials, and emerging market equities, reduce a little bit on industrials and semis. Where where does that leave them adding, <laughs> adding cash? Well, uh, they shouldn't be adding anything right now. In my opinion, you should be, uh, you know, protecting your capital because other than having bought at the lows, these are the best windows of opportunity to add money to the market through the business cycle. If you recall, the sell-off after QE1, the flash crash, QE2, when we had the debt ceiling debate and downgrade was an excellent entry point for the market. So these really are your opportunities. If you're already cautiously positioned, don't worry about it because these are two-month transitory events, the market rebounds even faster than it goes down, and we move on our merry way. The Fed is not going to derail the recovery. This is not going to negatively impact growth or the earnings outlook. It's a risk-off volatility one, shock. Barry, one it's quick a buying metaphysical question I want to ask you, because people are asking it about the pandemic right now, and they're saying, okay, even if we have Delta, even if there's an adverse economic reaction, we know from history that we have a strong rebound to follow. In the taper that you're describing, you're talking about an adverse market reaction followed by a strong rebound. So why wouldn't the market just price, pull forward the rebound, and not actually have the sell-off in both cases? Um, Because of this transfer of risk. I mean, one of the most insidious things that QE does is it suppresses interest rate risk. And, you know, there's all sorts of effects that come out of that. There's a a suppression of creative destruction, companies getting financing that shouldn't do otherwise, and investors taking more risk than they would have otherwise. So as that risk gets transferred from the, you know, government who's not hedging it to the private sector that needs to hedge it, that causes a volatility shock. That's the part that I'm saying is unavoidable. This is not about expectations. This is about all of a sudden Barclays mortgage desk has a whole bunch of risk that they didn't have before. They tell the equity derivative desk to cut the risk, the credit desk to cut the risk. 
Next thing you know, it permeates out the hedge funds, and that's how these risk-off shocks occur. Well, that's why it's fun talking to you, because you do have that inside perspective of how, you know, what's playing out in real time. Barry, appreciate your guidance today. Thanks. Thank you. Barry Knapp of Ironsides. We do, speaking of the bond market right now, the 20-year bonds just went up for auction. Let's bring in Rick Santelli with the results. How did it go off, Rick? You know what? It did not go off well. I gave it a Charlie minus, a C minus. It could have been a D plus, and I'll tell you why. It's $24 billion reopened 20-year. Uh, we're adding to an issue from a couple months ago, so technically it's 19-year, 10 months. The yield at the auction, 1.89. The high yield in the one-issued market made right at the end, right before 1 Eastern, was 1.87 and a half. So at 1.89, it priced higher. Higher yield, lower price. That's what all the grading is about on the negative side, because all the actual metrics, uh, the bid to cover, indirects, especially at 60.2, directs at 18.9, these are all better than 10 auction averages. Dealers take just a whisker under 21%, 2% under 10 auction average. So if you look at a chart of 20-year note yields, like all the fixed income markets today, rates have been rising all day. And that really did change the pricing mechanism, how far back they had to go to fix it and bring all the participants and match all the paper. It's probably a better auction than it looks, but at the end of the day, pricing counts. Today, there's been a major shift, obviously. Uh, maybe treasuries can still be a hedge for problematic stock pricing because the bounce in stock certainly has put the seller back in treasuries. Kelly? All right, Rick. Thank you very much. Rick Santelli. Ahead on the exchange, are crypto savings accounts too good to be true? One firm is promising more than 6% yields on your crypto. We'll speak to the CEO of Celsius next. Plus, the executive exchange. We're taking a look at a group of CEOs that are front and center of their industries. Some are revolutionizing their business. Others are fighting to keep competitors at bay. We're back in a moment with much, much more. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Some pretty big re rebounds in the crypto space ahead of a big industry conference today. Bitcoin moving higher by 7%. Ether popping about 10% here. A Litecoin uh, up nearly 7%. Two bits of news today might be shifting the narrative for crypto investors. CNBC technology reporter Mackenzie Sigalos is here with more. Mackenzie? Hey, Kelly. So big news in the crypto world today here in the U.S. Another Bitcoin mining company is going public. 
Core Scientific is planning to list on the NASDAQ through a merger with a SPAC that values the company at about $4.3 billion. Now, so far this year, Core has minted more than 3,000 Bitcoin, half of which were for its own account, which puts it ahead of its North American mining rivals. And what's key about this company is that it runs a 100% net carbon neutral business. 56% of its electricity comes from sustainable sources, including solar, wind, hydro, and nuclear. And it buys carbon credits to offset the rest. Now, Bitcoin's carbon footprint has been a huge topic of conversation when it comes to mining. And with China expelling all of its crypto miners, many have started to relocate to the U.S. So the rise of mining companies like Core that prioritize being powered by renewables is really helping to change the narrative around Bitcoin's environmental impact. All right. Mackenzie, we appreciate, again, a lot going on in crypto uh, today, Mackenzie Sigalos. And it's quickly become a space where holders can find decent yield at a time when traditional savings accounts pay almost nothing. In fact, blockchain-based platform Celsius is offering a 6% yield on up to 5 Bitcoin and 3.5% after that. But what happens when prices drop, activity cools, or regulators come calling? Joining me now is Celsius founder and CEO Alex Mashinsky. Alex, it's great to have you here. How does this work? Sure. The um, customers can basically download a wallet from uh, the Apple or the Android store and deposit up to 42 different assets, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, stable coins like USDC, which earns 8.8%. Uh, you don't have to do anything. You get paid uh, yield every Monday. And, uh, you know, it's uh, just we do all the hard work. We basically create yield on from institutional investors, exchanges, uh, DeFi, as well as lending to uh, retail customers, lending margin borrowed for retail customers. How do you create yield? And how is it that by doing nothing, I can hold the USDC stable coin and earn 8%? So Celsius created this category back in 2018. Now there's probably close to 50 companies offering that, including Coinbase and others. Uh, Yield is all around us, right? Uh, Basically, there's always somebody who needs to borrow the asset, Bitcoin or Ethereum or uh, a stable coin, and they're willing to pay uh, a higher rate. Celsius just uh, gives most of that back to our users, to the people who have uh, uh, lent us those assets in the first place. Uh, yesterday, New Jersey cracked down on BlockFi. I don't know if you would consider yourselves exactly the same, but here's what they said. I wonder if it would apply to using a platform like Celsius. They issued a cease and desist order against BlockFi, which is headquartered in New Jersey, um, saying they can no longer sell unregistered securities in the form of interest-earning cryptocurrency accounts. The regulators also warned other DeFi platforms saying they, quote, present a heightened risk of loss to investors but aren't protected like the FDIC for bank insurance or the SIPC as with brokerage accounts. Wouldn't this kind of regulatory regulatory crackdown apply to Celsius at some point? Well, so we are not in the business of selling you coins. We don't try to sell you Bitcoin or Ethereum or stablecoin. Our job is just to earn yield on assets you already have. So we also work closely with regulators all over the world. Uh, We've been around longer than all these companies you're talking about. And I think uh, we're fully compliant. We do everything we need to do to stay compliant in all the jurisdictions we operate. We operate in over 170 countries worldwide. We manage uh, over 15 billion in assets. So we're not just a fly-by-night company that started yesterday. 
And uh, you mentioned uh, before this segment, you mentioned Core Scientific. Celsius is one of the large investors in Core Scientific. We are one of the large miners in North America. Uh, so we also create yield by effectively mining Bitcoin and uh, by creating Bitcoin or, or minting Bitcoin right out of the blockchain. Mm-hmm. So our, our, our diverse source, sources of yield uh, are very different than what BlockFi or other people do. They're relying on securities to create some of their yield, which is very different than what Celsius does. And that brings me to my final question, which is, as somebody who watched the financial crisis play out firsthand, when we learned about a lot of money market mutual funds, for instance, who were able to get higher yields based on leverage and some shadow banking activities, what would you say to people who are concerned, you know, Fed researchers and others who are looking at stable coins, concerned about the buildup of leverage in the crypto system and looking at platforms like yours and wondering if that's where those attractive yields come from? You know, is there too much leverage in the system? Do platforms like yours contribute to it? So on May 21st of 2021 and in March of 2020, the crypto community or the crypto platforms all went through a stress test. Uh, Bitcoin was down 53% in 24 hours. Ethereum was down over 60% in 24 hours. And no one went bankrupt. None of Celsius counterparties or the people we borrow from had any uh, liquidations or major uh, 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 basically counterparties going out of business. So we passed our own stress test. The Fed did not intervene. We didn't need a bailout from the crypto, from the United States of America or the citizens here. And I can guarantee you that there's no bank in the United States or bank in the world that can take a 53% drawdown and still keep walking. So the leverage that you're talking about actually exists in the banking system where most banks are leveraged 20 to 1. And in the crypto community, uh, for example, Celsius has no leverage. We're not, uh, we're not allowed to do uh, fractional reserves or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I think regulators are uh, doing a great job looking into it to make sure that we all following great standards. But you're not going to find leverage or a lot of leverage uh, with companies like Celsius or our counterparty. That's a very interesting look at what you guys do and what's going on in the space right now. Alex, thanks again for your time. Alex Mashinsky is the CEO of Celsius. Coming up, ridiculously high prices might have home buyers and builders taking a step back from this red-hot market. We'll take a look at which stocks could be impacted, plus the casino gold rush in Florida, why DraftKings and FanDuel have spent more than $60 million lobbying to gain access to this coveted market. Stay with us. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow's up 245 points right now, so we're pretty close to session highs as this two-day rebound continues now after Monday's big declines. Seven-tenths of a percent gain for the Dow. It's the outperformer of the major three. But let's take a look at some individual stocks as well, which are on the move today, including Harley-Davidson, which is down at this check about 6%. They reported an earnings beat but missed revenue projections. They're down about 12% on the month now, although still higher this year. And also, check out shares of Sonova and Sunrun, both rallying today on a bullish call over at JP Morgan. 
Morgan, about 3 to 5 percent gains. Uh, JPM saying they are top picks, best positioned to meet demand in this space in the near term. For more on that call and others, go to CNBC.com slash pro. Let's go to Rahel Solomon now for our CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. The U.S. and Germany reaching an agreement to allow the completion of a controversial Russian gas pipeline to Europe. The deal will allow the Nord Stream 2 project to go forward without new sanctions from the U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi blocking two Trump allies from joining the committee investigating the Capitol Hill insurrection. House Republican leaders had chosen representatives Jim Banks and Jim Jordan to sit on the panel, but both Banks and Jordan voted to overturn President Biden's election victory. Now, GOP leader Kevin McCarthy is threatening to pull all Republicans from the panel so the party can do its own investigation. In China's Henan province, more than 17,000 firefighters have been mobilized to help with flood rescue efforts. More than 5,700 soldiers and army personnel are also helping with search and rescue. And on the news tonight, our Eunice Yoon reports live from China on the rescue efforts. And sports reporter Maria Taylor is leaving ESPN. This just weeks after word that an ESPN colleague suggested that Taylor received a role because of her race. Taylor is reportedly joining NBC and is likely to cover its Olympics coverage. NBC and CNBC are both part of Comcast NBC Universal. You're now up wow. to date, Kelly. I'll send it back All to you. All right, Rahel, thank you, Rahel Solomon. Still ahead, a tax deduction that millions of businesses use could soon be repealed. We have details about the Democrats' plan to take on pass-throughs coming up. But first, Jamie Dimon gets another vote of confidence. Brian Nickel isn't worried about pricing power and what Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos are doing to try to move Netflix forward. How executives across many industries are working to get a leg up on the competition. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. It's been a paradigm-shifting year with the pandemic, and companies are relying on their executives more than ever to navigate rising cost pressures, fickle consumer habits, and reopening uncertainty. As we head into the busiest week of earnings season, let's take a look at the different strategies companies are using to keep up with, maybe even to get ahead of the times. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon getting a big vote of confidence from his board, winning a stock contract that he can exercise in five years if shares appreciate, and it's valued at an estimated $49 million after that vesting. Dimon has led JPM since 2005 through the financial crisis, leading it to become the largest U.S. bank. Meanwhile, in the restaurant space, Chipotle shares are surging to a new all-time high today after another strong earnings report. Worries about profit margins? Not a problem at the burrito giant. Chipotle CEO Brian Nickel telling Closing Bell yesterday that the company has such good pricing power, they can keep raising prices to offset costs without worrying about customer loyalty. Must be nice. And finally, Netflix, potentially at a crossroads. Subscriber growth has slowed as new streaming services gather strength. Co-CEOs Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos are now adding gaming to the platform in an attempt to lower churn and diversify their offerings to an ever more segmented and younger audience. So three companies and three very different industries who rely on strong leadership and vision. Let's break it all down now with RBC's Gerard Cassidy on the banks, our own Kate Rogers on Chipotle and CNBC.com's Alex Sherman on Netflix. So everybody, let's begin with Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan's plan to keep him CEO for as long as possible. What does this incentive reward tell you, Gerard? Well, Kelly, I think it's an award that really looks at what he has done for the J.P. Morgan shareholder their employees and the communities in which they serve. As you may know, there's over 255,000 employees at J.P. Morgan Chase that Jamie Dimon leads. If you look at his stock price since the merger of Bank One and J.P. Morgan, its compound annual growth rates just over 10 percent 
which is far better than the financial indexes and even better than the S&P 500. And then today, when you look at his valuation, he trades at a nice premium, 30, about 30% to its peers. And, and CEOs cannot control their stock prices. They do control the evaluation. And I think that's a direct reflection on the success that he has leading J.P. Morgan. Was there, Jared, some kind of concern that he would walk away? Because as large a reward as he's getting, there's been evidently some talk that he could do even better by going into a different kind uh, of industry. So is this meant to be some sort of uh, move to close that compensation gap? I mean, you know, he's been at this company for so long now, it's hard to imagine that he would at this moment in time choose to just walk away. Kelly, it's an interesting uh, point because, you know, he bleeds J.P. Morgan's blood. I I would be shocked if he would lead to go into some other, you know, kind of industry or even, you know, into some sort of political appointment. Um, He's very passionate. He's got an incredible amount of energy and passion for what he does. And he's in a position that is very, uh, I think, important, not just to the U.S. banking industry, but the global banking industry. And there'd be tough I think it would be tough to find a position of equal um, importance, you know, to him. So I, I'd be really surprised. I think again, it's a reward for the success that this that he has achieved being CEO at J.P. Morgan Chase. One final quick question, Gerard. But do you think his famously dismissive comments about crypto will come back to haunt? The bank at a time when we're talking about, you know, how a lot of the younger talent and liquidity and so much more is going to the crypto space. You know, at times he does shoot from the hip, which we all love. (laughs) I mean, that's one of the endearing uh, characteristics of this man. And um, I I don't think it's going to be wrong on crypto. Uh, And I think he was really referring to Bitcoin at the time. Yes. Digital currencies, that's different. And I, I don't think he was referring to that. But to think of Bitcoin in those currencies as being a modem of exchange replacing the monetary system we have today is very unlikely. Digital currencies, on the other hand, will probably be part of our future as well as the world's future. Yes. And I, he, I would imagine J.P. Morgan will be at the forefront of that in many ways, like they have been uh, so much of the rest of the change and innovation in this space. All right, Jared, thank you. Jared Cassidy with RBC. Let's turn our attention now to Chipotle, where shares are hitting an all-time high up 12% today. Kate Rogers is here with what's behind this move. Kate? Kelly, it's all about this earnings report. EPS beat by nearly a dollar. Revenues came in right in line for the second quarter. Same store sales, a huge number, increasing by more than 30 percent. That was also a beat compared to analyst estimates. Now, restaurant margin came in at 24.5 percent, nearly double what it was this quarter last year. Also, the company said the highest level since Q3 of 2015, thanks in part to menu price increases, lower beef costs, and then fewer promotions during the quarter. Those price increases are not scaring away customers. Nichols said in-store dining has recovered about 70 percent, that they've also held on to about 80 percent of digital customer gains as of the end of Q2. And he also mentioned that July is really off to a strong start as well. Chipotle, Kate, is no, listen, people like the food, but it's easy also to get Chipotle fatigue. And he's done a great job between the digital efforts and so much more at keeping them really at the forefront of this industry. This might be a tough question to answer, but are there other rival chains that you think have suffered from not having either the clarity of vision or the you know, ability to invest so much in their digital capacities where they're just not able to certainly pass along the pricing pressures that they're feeling? 
I think it's a bit different than a traditional fast food player because this is more of a QSR and it's a, a kind of a higher end type of fast, quick food, right? I think Chipotle's done a great job of executing on digital, as you mentioned. That was one of the things that Brian Nichol told us when he first got the job. He wanted to make it easier to get Chipotle and access it at many different points. So now they have digital. They've got this loyalty program, 23 million members, and those Chipotle lanes for mobile order and pickup that are higher margin. They've also done really well with menu innovation, which is a tough thing to get get right. They have this stage gate process, they call it, where they test out items and see how they fare with customers before formally adding them to the menu. They've also done digital only products that they've added via their uh, digital system, like the quesadilla, these lifestyle bowls. So uh, people who are ordering feel kind of included in the process because you have to get it only via their app. So I think that that's another really original and interesting thing that they've done. And uh, as far as restaurants that are getting it right or wrong, I think it's just so tough to compare because kind of the company is in a league of its own right now with what they've done over the last few years. Exactly. And I think it's easy enough to just kind of say people who aren't doing all of that are the ones who are going to struggle in this transition. Mm-hmm. Kate, thanks. Kate Rogers. Finally, shares of Netflix are lowered today after yesterday's results. They confirmed uh, their entrance into gaming and added more subscribers than expected. But still, growth is slowing big time. The company is contending with tough comps from last year and ever-growing competition. Let's bring in Alex Sherman to discuss. Alex, this gaming foray has a lot of people wondering if they're losing some of the vision that got them this far. Yeah, look, there's a bear thesis and a bull thesis, like with every stop with Netflix. So if you look on the bear side, I suppose you can say, okay, video gaming is sort of a a, a step away from streaming. And maybe this is a sign that Netflix feels like, um, you know, overall growth is slowing. And there are there are data points that suggest that. I mean, you look at this quarter, Netflix actually lost subscribers in the U.S. Canada region, 400,000 subscribers lower than the previous quarter. And, and if you look at, at the stock today, you'll see that it's down, most likely because the third quarter estimate uh, for Netflix came in at about three and a half million subscribers as a projection for an ad next quarter. That was a big miss. Analysts were projecting between five and five and a half million. So there's some worrying signs here. But on the flip side, the, bear, the, the, the bull thesis is that, look, streaming's just 27 percent of U.S. TV watching. Netflix loves to point this out. Linear, traditional cable and broadcast TV still make up 63% of all viewing. So as we transition as a society from cable to streaming, that's a lot of runway for Netflix. And the other thing that actually Ted Sarandos said in his earnings call at the very end of it yesterday, he noted that the rest of the media world is dealing with these big mass mergers, whether it's Disney, Fox or, or you know, uh, Warner Media Discovery that's happening. Netflix is just focused on buying the best content and completely focused on streaming. So the competition is clearly playing catch up here as they figure out what to do with these thousands of employees, potentially duplicative costs. That could be sort of a feather in the Netflix that they just don't have to deal with these major distractions. Sure. Although I wonder, I mean, again, the initial vision for Netflix was so brilliant to turn a DVD library into the advent of streaming before everybody else got in on this space. It's not their fault that everyone is now caught up. It's just that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So you don't want to diminish these executives and what they've accomplished by asking the question. But still, what is the vision for Netflix from here on out? Do they just have to be a very profitable version of themselves now? And it almost reminds me a little bit of Google when they finally brought in Eric Schmidt to kind of run things. You know, they were past the the most exciting era, even though the biggest financial gains and the biggest market share gains were still to be made. The nature of a company as uh, any company, as it succeeds and grows over time, is, and, and Reed Hastings is kind of straight up with this. It's like, look, yeah, at some point, 
our revenue growth is going to diminish. I mean, it was still 19% revenue growth. So you're, you're still thinking like in the growth stock region there. At some point it comes down, it will be single digit revenue growth. And the narrative will change a little bit. And, and Netflix is suddenly starting to talk about stock buybacks on their calls. They kind of poo-poo M&A. So I'm not really sure that's the route that they'll go. Uh, but certainly the company's going to adjust. That said, there's still a strong international growth thesis here with Netflix, a lower ARPU, certainly in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, they continue to, to churn out strong growth numbers. So the video game thing is maybe a hint that they're going to kind of go in another direction. But Reed Hastings said it yesterday, we are a one-product company. So any other ancillary product or revenue it's just going to go to supporting the core product mm. of street video. I don't expect that to change anytime soon. Yeah, and you guys did a great job in your story of highlighting the data and other reasons why gaming uh, makes sense to them and is ex- exciting and attractive. So I definitely encourage people to take a read of that. Alex, thanks for your time today. Sure, thank Alex you. Alex Sherman of CNBC.com. Coming up, it's New York making a further push into gaming as it opens up mobile sports betting. But Florida is also being courted by big names like Las Vegas Sands and FanDuel. In fact, we're going to speak with FanDuel interim CEO Amy Howe in her first ever interview on CNBC about Florida and the other opportunities in gaming. That's next. Welcome back. Major players like DraftKings, FanDuel, and Las Vegas Sands are all spending big bucks to expand gambling in Florida. Contessa Brewer is here with a look at the money at stake and a very special guest. Contessa? Hi, Kelly. Yeah, Florida has 15 casinos that make a $7.5 billion economic impact on Florida, according to the American Gaming Association. Well, now gaming companies are throwing millions at political efforts in Florida to expand that state's opportunities for betting. Currently, a deal made by Florida's governor allows the Seminole Tribe, which owns the Hard Rock brand, a near monopoly in the state. But allowing more licensees would benefit operators like Penn National, It offers off-track wagering north of Orlando. Las Vegas Sands has invested $17 million in a political committee to get initiatives on the state ballot, asking voters to approve new casinos in their state. DraftKings and FanDuel spent $10 million apiece, according to reporting from the Miami Herald, which counted $62 million from these companies ahead of a July 1st deadline that would have lowered the amount of money permitted for companies to spend on citizen ballot initiatives. It would have lowered it to $3,000 per company. A federal judge blocked that rule from taking effect. But the investments illustrate why Florida is considered a potential gaming super state. And joining us now for an exclusive and, by the way, her first ever interview on CNBC, Amy Howe, who has just been named interim CEO of FanDuel. And it's so great to see you, Amy. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Contessa. It's great to be here. And you're coming into the sports betting industry, which is dominated by men for men. What opportunities do you see both to expand leadership of women in this space and to appeal and cater to women as customers? Yeah, listen, uh, as you can imagine, as a a senior female executive, it's a topic that I care deeply about. I've I've had the privilege of leading companies and single-handedly influencing the outcome around gender diversity. And you just, you see the results right around the culture and the performance of our organization. Um, let me start on the executive side, it, you know, sitting here as the, the leader of FanDuel, I'm incredibly proud to say that four of our top 10 executives are incredibly talented women, right? Those are stats that rival any tech company, let alone some of the companies in our space. Um, and you've seen the evidence, right? There's mounds of 
uh, of data around how, if you look at some of the, the most recent reports coming out of McKinsey, more diverse organizations are higher performer, right? 25 to 35% higher performer, if you can really crack that code on gender and ethnic diversity. Um, and listen here, as we're sitting here, you know, as a tech company, when it, trying to win that war for talents, the future employees are voting with their feet as well. 40% of employees will turn a company down if they don't feel like there's an inclusive environment. So as a leader, I feel this is, you know, not just important for us in our mission to be the number one mobile gaming operator, but our success as an industry. Um, but, you know, to your question on the consumer side, it's a great one. Uh, and a lot of that starts with our support of female athletes. You know, even before sports betting was legalized, we were supporting the WNBA for years. We've done some great things with women's soccer. Uh, this year, we were the first company to offer bets for women's basketball in uh, March Madness. Um, and uh, this this is a fun one, Contessa. We just had our uh, most recent consumer event coming out of COVID. It was called Fantasy. It was a, a great event in Miami on a private yacht. And there was a, a young woman named Rebecca who is an NBA Bucks fan. She's waking up very happy. And uh, she was the grand prize winner of $150,000. So I think there's just a huge unpa- untapped potential for us here. Yeah, this is a great day for any of us who have rooted on for the Milwaukee Bucks in years past. Uh, it is a great day. I was talking about um, the efforts to expand in Florida and, and mentioned you and some of your competitors here. It is not the only gambling super state that still has yet to truly embrace gambling. New York, California, Texas. I know that there's new opportunities for you now in Canada, which has just um, permitted betting on single events. Which of these geographic areas for you is of primary importance? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think they're all important because they represent a a meaningful percentage of the U.S. population, right, that has yet to come online, which is just great growth potential for us. Um, Just in the next two months, we have Arizona and Connecticut coming online, right? Um, Arizona, we're partnering up with the Phoenix Suns, where we're going to have a state-of-the-art sports book right in the arena in Connecticut. Those will be online before NFL, right, which is a huge season for us, particularly as we step into a new partnership with the NFL, um, but you're right. The the momentum continues, right? Uh, the, the great momentum that we saw during COVID. Um, New York is our home state as FanDuel. So we've been working closely with the New York Gaming Commission. Um, Canada, uh, first province to open up there is going to be Ontario. So uh, more and more headwinds. And our objective is to make sure that we can be number one as these new states come online. Amy, it's Kelly. If I can just quickly ask, where do most people in Florida gamble right now? I mean, I know you mentioned there are some opportunities. And as more states do things like New York with mobile gaming or what have you, I mean, are we at some point, are we just taking money from one hand to the other? Or can the pie keep growing? Well, I mean, listen, in, in most in the states that aren't legalized, that money is going to the black market, right? So um, in this case, Florida, the Sunshine State isn't getting, uh, they're not getting the economic advantage of that. And um, consumers are having to do that in a market that's not regulated. Um, they can, you know, they can certainly go to land-based casinos. You can play in on, on fantasy sports. But in terms of real money wagering online, um, it's not legal and it's not safe. And that's our objective, right? And we, we've been working closely with uh, the legal constituents in Florida to make sure that we can ultimately get there. And, and there are still gamblers who won't gamble if it's not legal, that they won't go to black market offshore accounts and gamble just because it's against the law and they, they feel strongly about that. Uh, speaking of being against the law, we're watching so much cybersecurity issues because of the efforts on digital and mobile. How much of a priority is cybersecurity for you? How concerned are you about all of these hacks we've seen in other industries? 
Yeah, it's a great question, Contessa. And let me start with the consumer on this one, right? We know from our research that the number one attribute that consumers are looking for in a sports betting partner is that they can trust the brand, right? They're giving us confidential information. They want to make sure that that information is protected. Uh, but they also want to make sure that when are on their site, when they're on our site, we're they're being protected from bad actors. Um, I can safely say that, you know, from our parent company, Flutter on down, uh, this is a huge priority for us. And we put our money where our mouth is every day. We're investing in state-of-the-art state tools and technology uh, to make sure that we can keep that information safe um, and protect them from bad actors. And candidly, you know, if we don't do that, we're not going to have the privilege to serve the, the millions of consumers that are on our platform today. So um, it has to be front and center as we grow. All right. Thank you both for joining us today. Amy Howe with our own Contessa Brewer to talk about the future of gaming. We greatly appreciate it. Still ahead, take a look at today's mystery chart. It's a housing name that's down 50% from its 52-week high. And this red-hot housing market will explain and get the bullish case next on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. Despite the red-hot housing market, Zillow, that's our mystery chart. The shares are slumping this year. They're down 46% from their all-time high back in February. Real estate stocks are also a pretty mixed bag. Zillow, Remax, and Redfin are all lower on the year, while Realogy and EXP World Holdings are making some healthy gains. Berenberg is out with bullish initiations on these names, saying current valuations are attractive given the growth potential. Let's bring in Justin Ages. He's a real, tech tech, real estate tech analyst for Berenberg Capital Markets. Justin, it's good to have you. By yeah. the way, I just love your you. your area, real estate tech. I mean, we are seeing, we were just talking about Chipotle and all the tech that it's involved in, and it feels like food tech is now a thing. And anyway, that's totally a, a side comment. On, yeah, the issue, no, is on the issue of Zillow, why are the shares languishing so much? I think uh, part of the reason is the market is misunderstanding that this is now a real estate business. They've gone through, you know, this transformation to Zillow 2.0 and over 50% of their revenue is from homes, which is iBuying. So they're actually buying their, their, uh, buying houses from consumers themselves. And this stands in contrast to the advertising business, which is, you know, as you know, very related to inflation concerns, interest rate concerns. So as the market better understands, we think the shares will come back. Well, but it's not just them, is it? You know, all of the real estate names, and we've been noting this sort of strange dichotomy for a while, yeah. they're not doing as well as you would think in this housing market. Does that itself give you some information about either investors thinking this, you know, the demand's going to roll over, that high prices are going to choke things off? Is it a competition issue with compression of fees and a business model thing? What, what do you think it's all about? I think if you look at the broader picture, so over the last year, these stocks were some of the best performing as the housing market's did really heat up. And then year to date, as concerns over the housing market, concerns over interest rates and higher valuations, the stocks really took a hit. But as interest, low interest rates are, we believe, likely to stay around, inventory levels are ready to stay low, uh, housing prices should stay pretty consistent, which means commissions should be you know, relatively steady, if not growing. Yeah. So we, we don't see any reason for this to you know, the, as you said, the stocks are really languish. So question on direct buying, and you think this is a huge potential growth market. Interestingly, you don't think Redfin has the scale necessarily to compete. You only see 10% upside for that stock. Zillow, you see 43% upside. If they do yeah. win at direct buying, that has to mean that market share uh, is coming from traditional real estate agents, right? Uh, not necessarily, right? Because a lot of times, especially 
recently, these iBuyers will now pair you with a commission with a commission based agent. Hmm. But but taking that to the side, um, the traditional brokers who pair you with an agent, they're not directly competing with someone who's going to you and will buy your house directly from you all the time. So yes, it could hamper commission shares a little bit. But as we see customers not being totally on board 100% with the iBuying model, they want to have an agent, they want to have someone there to hold their hand. So we don't see that as necessarily this massive headwind to the overall real estate brokerage market. It's so interesting. And doesn't that so often happen that sort of the innovators on the scene end up becoming friends with the very industry they're trying to disrupt? You know, they find out that the industry itself is a better customer uh, than the mass public. Uh, Marketing costs aren't as high either. Uh, Justin, thanks so much. We'll have you back. We appreciate your vision into this space. All right. Appreciate it. Take care. Justin Ages of Berenberg. A 2017 tax break for millions of businesses could disappear if Senate Democrats get their way. We have those details next. Welcome back. Democratic Senator from Oregon, Ron Wyden, taking on the 2017 tax cut on pass-through companies, proposing to repeal its 20 percent deduction. Robert Frank is here with the details and what it could mean for millions of businesses. Robert? Kelly, there are actually over 30 million pass-throughs in America. They far outnumber the number of C-Corps, and that's mainly because of the tax benefits. Those benefits became even more attractive after the 2017 tax cuts. That allowed qualified pass-through owners to deduct 20% of their business income from their federal taxes. More than 14 million pass-throughs actually used that exemption in 2018. That's according to the IRS. But now, as you mentioned, Senator Ron Wyden wants to remove it. He says 61% of the benefits actually went to the top 1%. And he has proposed eliminating the qualified business deduction for any taxpayer who makes more than $500,000 or more a year, with a phase-in starting at $400,000, that amounts to a $100 billion a year increase through pass-throughs over 10 years. He says he would actually help small businesses by allowing more kinds of companies to get a deduction. Right now, doctors, lawyers, and accountants can be, cannot be eligible. They would be under this plan. Large pass-throughs in real estate, finance, and oil, gas, they would be the hardest hit, Kelly. Do small businesses think they're being helped, Robert, by this? It depends on how much you make. If you're if you're over five hundred thousand dollars a year, no, you're not being helped. But there, as he says, there are small accountants, dentists that right now cannot take advantage of it. And it's a very complicated system. So at the very least, it would simplify. Although five hundred thousand for a business itself is not that, I mean, not that high. It's okay. It's not great. Anyway, we'll continue discussion, Robert. Thanks, Robert Frank. That does it for The Exchange today, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.